Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. Once you begin the slide down into homelessness, for whatever the reason that may be, the system is not really designed very well to help you stand back up quickly. And the longer that you are sort of plummeting into homelessness, the more challenging it becomes to extricate yourself from it. SDG Talkers, welcome back. Really excited today to have our third episode of our mini-series with the Unleash USA Hacks focus around the issue of homelessness with Stephen Samra. Stephen himself was a trauma survivor who experienced homelessness for a period of time in his life. And Stephen's going to give us some insights to how city design can cause homelessness and why housing is a core foundation to enable sustainable health and opportunity for those in the homeless population. He's going to give some insights to what it's like to be living in a constant fear and danger and what that does to your mental health and to your heart health while you're living on the streets. And Stephen's going to give us some really important insights to how we humans treat each other and breaking down these stigmas. And particularly, we're not talking about a homeless person. We are talking about a person experiencing homelessness. The verbs, the nouns, the words we use are important, and we need to always remember that. So enjoy this conversation with Stephen. Make sure to check out the Unleash Hacks USA on social media. And I really hope you enjoy this episode and have a great day. Stephen Samara, welcome to the SDG Talks podcast. How are you doing today? Kevin, thank you for having me here. I'm fantastic today. Pleasure to have you. Where are you located today in the world? I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I originally lived in the Reno Tahoe area and uh, moved here about 15 years ago. Awesome. Tahoe and Nashville, two of my favorite places, particularly Tahoe. Arguably, probably one of the most beautiful lakes in the world. I am not going to argue about that. <laughs> yeah. So for those of us that don't, know anything about you, Stephen, and want to get some context into kind of where, how you got to where you are today. I really want to dive into the C4 innovations and the work you're doing there, but give us a kind of a quick overview of sort of, this is not too quick, but some overview on, on you and some of your upbringing into how you got to where you are today. So Kevin, I had a, it's hard to describe, um, you know, an, an interesting 40 years of preparation I think that's the easiest and best way to say it, to set me up for the role that I have today. And by that, I just mean that, you know, I had a number of different experiences throughout my life that created both a mindset and a desire to support others and, and my community in really achieving equitable, fair, strength-based approaches to both our environment and how we treat each other. And so as I was going through school, I got, you know, I did my bachelor's at at, uh, CSU Chico and I focused on sociology mainly because it was a, I couldn't decide on on an actual degree and sociology just seemed to encompass all of the areas that were important to me. And so I, you know, I did my sociology degree and got my bachelor's, and and then I 
you know, that wasn't enough. It just didn't feel like it was enough. I knew that where I needed to, I think, focus my efforts was going to be related in some way to government, to policy, to, even to politics. Because, um, you know, obviously policy is made there. So I returned to, to, to college and I got my master's degree and got it in the public administration with an emphasis on health. Now, one of the things I didn't share was that I also have a background as a paramedic. I spent about, I don't know, probably seven years in the field. I was actually a paramedic in California for a while. But the challenge with that is that, you know, I would catch people at their very worst in their very worst situations. I would provide this, you know, initial emergency aid, and then I would disappear. And I, I was always left in a way frustrated that I was unable to follow them through their recovery uh, and then, you know, sort of their return to life. So when I moved to Nashville, I came here with my wife and my wife had taken a, you know, a fairly high level job at that time. And I was looking for something to do. And there was an, an ad um, that said, basically, you know, working with, with people who are experiencing homelessness, you know, this would be a street outreach position. And I've always been a good people person. So I, I applied for that job. And this was, I think, 2004. I had the interview and it was really interesting. I'll, I'll share this in a little anecdote, but I dressed up because that's, you know, when you go to a job interview as a college graduate with a master's degree, you normally put on at least business casual. And I was in a suit and tie. And I showed up for the interview and the gentleman who was going to interview me came in a little bit late and he was wearing a, like a, a navy pea coat all the way down to his ankles. And it was covered in dog hair. And he was the nicest man that I may have ever met in my life. And the moment I saw his casual look, I thought, yeah, this is kind of a job I'm, I'm sort of interested in. And then we went, uh, we did a little tour of the, you know, the, the locations I'd be working in. And one of those places was a day shelter. And the day shelter had laundry, showers, et cetera. And I, I walked in, and I'm still in a suit and tie. And I walked in, and I will tell you that all the people that were in that shelter that day, I knew them. Not by name, but by the experiences that they were having right then, right now, as people experiencing homelessness. And I spent the next hour just hanging out with a bunch of brothers and sisters who were dealing with all kinds of challenges while they were experiencing homelessness. And from that point, I knew where I needed to devote my energy and time. And I have been doing that basically ever since. And so you mentioned you're a people person and you had this connection to the homeless population, but how did that come to be? I mean, in terms of your your passion to want to help the homeless population? Is that what about your upbringing or your, your interests sparked you to want to get involved with this community? Well, so, okay, Kevin, you asked me, you know, a, a pretty powerful question, you know, kind of how did I, how did I get here? When I think about my work, right, my role in raising awareness about and, and really thinking through strategies and the approaches that are needed to support people experiencing homelessness and, and why that even matters to me, I will share a piece of my own history here. And I think this will be what you're, you're kind of looking for because it'll provide some insight and some clarity into, into why I'm doing what I do. 
I'm a person with the lived experience of an opioid and a substance use disorder. I have a serious and persistent mental illness. I'm also a complex trauma survivor. I've been justice involved in California, and that involvement resulted in a conviction and a prison sentence for a nonviolent drug crime. And that crime today, by the way, isn't even illegal in California anymore. And I've also experienced homelessness off and on, uh, mostly through the 1990s. And it was a, as a direct result of my untreated co-occurring disorders. At the height of my addiction to black tar heroin, it exacerbated really by this uncontrolled mental illness that I, I frankly was self-medicating for, just didn't understand it at that time. This is gonna be hard to hear for some folks out there, but the truth is suicide at that time seemed like the most reasonable way out of a terrible mess that I'd, I'd made out of my life. And there just really didn't seem to be any future that I could see that was worth living because by the time I had reached that point, I'd slammed every door shut that could help me extricate myself from a situation that, that you know, sorry to say, I had created for myself. And so as I'm grappling with this terrible depression, honestly, a song came on the radio and I just happened to be paying attention. One of the verses in that song it just stopped me in my tracks. And right then I knew there was no doubt at all what I was supposed to be doing with the rest of my life living in recovery. And that song is called Sing and Call. And the verse that really changed my life forever and is the primary reason that I'm even here with you today in recovery now for more than 20 years and, and you know, honestly doing the podcast together with you that verse goes like this. Help me, sweet Jesus. I'm weary from the journey, and I need to tell my brothers what I saw. And when I just say that, I choke up a little bit because it still has the same power, in fact, maybe more power than it did that first time I heard it. And Kevin, I've been doing exactly that ever since. Wow. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And, and I, I listened to the song this morning and it reminded me of my best friend and spending time with him at Lake Tahoe. Uh, he loves, the, he actually, I know he loves this artist and big Billy Joel, Elton John fan. He kind of had that similar kind of vibe and it, it was very comforting. And I, it's funny how sometimes, maybe I, I sometimes listen to music and I'm mindless and I don't think about it. But sometimes when you listen to the words, you can really hear while wow, some of these artists are really communicating a powerful message. And and sometimes it's a, it can be a simple message in a song or a smile on the street or something that can be that turning point in your life. And it's, I'm, 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 with, I'm glad to hear it. And then it's even more insp inspirational to hear the work that you've done now since that moment and sharing the work that you've done, sharing your experience to help those. And, and now I, I'd love to kind of transition into that sharing those experiences for good and maybe getting to the root of some of these problems. You mentioned you were incarcerated for something that is, is now not, no longer legal. Part of it was to this issue of you have this diagnosed mental condition. It seems like within the homeless population, there's a lot of this unknown and these stigmas around mental health. There are these, you know, kind of what causes, what causes homelessness? You know, is it the lack of access to mental health services? Is the lack of access to housing? So give me some of your thoughts and context on, and maybe I'll rephrase it, kind of what, what are some of these misconceptions on what causes homelessness 
and what are some of your ideas on on ways that we can support and, and invest empower the homeless community to write that ship that's a fantastic question and and kevin you're you're spot on in that there is a you know an assumption out in the you know in the larger communities that that you know most of the folks out there experiencing homelessness are there because they're either mentally ill or addicted to some substance or you know a combination of both and there's some truth to that you know there's certainly some truth to that and and it's hard to refute when you see images of you know people experiencing homelessness where you know there may be syringes on the ground or you know they're passed out you know from alcohol consumption or any of those things but here's what i want people to really understand sometimes mental illness leads a person down a path that causes enough challenges in their life that they lose the supports and the services that are around them that are desperately needed to help a person through the mental health challenge. And there's so much stigma around mental illness that most folks, you know, it's a very tough decision to say, really to even look for mental health treatment and then to admit to yourself that somehow you might have a mental illness. That in and of itself is a challenge. So typically folks end up homeless because of an economic challenge, something has happened in their life. And there's a, you know, there's a really common, you know, sort of saying about everybody's two paychecks away from experiencing homelessness. And, and in many ways, that's, that's very accurate. And it's becoming more and more accurate today as we see, you know, a lot of inequality, you know, a huge wage gap. You know, I, I don't know that I, I've been earning a good living for, you know, 15 years now. I don't think I could afford to live in California and I'm priced out of the housing market, right? So if I can't live in a house in California, imagine the person earning minimum wage or, you know, even a $10 or $12 an hour job trying to rent in the Bay Area of California. Ain't going to happen. So there's something wrong there. And folks recognize this and they recognize the inequality. And they recognize the, the need to achieve, you know, their version of the American dream, but it feels like it's out of reach. Once you begin the slide down into homelessness, for whatever the reason that may be, the system is not really designed very well to help you stand back up quickly. And the longer that you are sort of plummeting into homelessness, the more challenging it becomes to extricate yourself from it. And there's not a one-stop shop, typically. Uh, There are a lot of homeless service delivery organizations out there, and they're doing fantastic work. But there's a lot of things that are needed. And if you think about this in terms of, you know, like, you know, the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, you know, I think about like SDG 11, right? Making cities and settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. But, but homelessness just flies in the face of all of those goals. And in fact, it really creates this false sense within a community that citizens are unsafe as a result of people experiencing homelessness. And they really couldn't be farther from the truth because homelessness is often caused by cities and settlements 
that aren't, say, resilient or sustainable. And folks at the bottom end of our society's ladder, they know this better than everyone else in the country. Stephen, so, diving in a little bit more, you, the city's design can cause homelessness. You, I would think initially, yes, the different economic conditions, but how does the design of a city exacerbate homelessness or how does that happen? So let me give you a quick example. If you were living in the Nashville area, I'll just use Nashville as an example. If you were living in the Nashville area and your transportation options were Uber, Lyft, and the bus, and you were looking for both services and employment, um, and you needed to travel from one side of the city to the other to make that happen. In our community, there aren't many options. Most folks would never be able to afford a Lyft or Uber ride. And in many ways, the same can be said about trying to purchase a bus pass that, that would allow them to, you know, to just to navigate around the city. Just that piece around access to services, access to employment, and access to public transportation that would be affordable or that would be on a sliding scale that could support somebody who was flat broke, but seeking a job would be really helpful. And when you pitch these ideas to, I can share that here, we, you know, we approached our MTA, our transit authority, and asked them about you know, creating a bus pass on a sliding scale. They weren't interested. So it's those kinds of things that I think, you know, the problem is this, Kevin. We look at these, these issues really in a myopic way. We look at them from these small pieces that don't intersect in what I would consider, you know, sort of the social determinants of health. All of these components need to be in place for healthy communities, a resilient citizenry, and, and they're, they're siloed wherever they are so that one part of the system is often completely unaware and really often doesn't care what the other parts are doing. It's about my little piece and making that little piece happen in the best way that I can. And we just miss the larger connection. And, and I feel like in, in a way, the SDGs are a touch misleading in a sense where they're trying to categorize these problems when really they, there's so much overlap. So sometimes it's, you know, this problem touches SDG 3, 7, 9, 12, 17. And I get that. But within this context of what causes homelessness, you just gave a great example of the transportation. So I want people to think about what are some business model innovations or different types of alternative methods of transportation that can help address some of these core roots. But what else within that SDG 11 context of the, the city design and the urban interface, what, what else besides transportation comes to mind or things that are real barriers and things that you think that maybe are some opportunities for innovation? Another really good question. So let me give you another example. A rescue mission, a place where individuals experiencing homelessness may find a little respite, you know, find a meal and a semi-safe place to sleep. And, and, you know, if you talk to folks experiencing homelessness, many of them will not go to shelters because they're not particularly safe. Here's the challenge. That shelter becomes their address, right? And they will get their mail at this location. And you need a place to get mail 
because things like, you know, the request to come in for your you know, social security disability hearing may come there, or you may be requested to, you know, show up at the, the, the local food stamp office. There has to be a way for you to, to access mail. So that's your address. And then when you go and apply for a job and you put that address down, that address is so stigmatizing that it's instantly noticeable. Wow, this guy's in a homeless shelter. And that application often, and I'm not saying that everybody does this, but you know, there, there are often better candidates in the minds of people who are reviewing those, those applications. So that it's, I mean, it's really simple, right? It's just that the fact that an address that you put down on your, uh, you know, your app, your, your job application could disqualify you from employment simply because of where you are located. Yeah. You don't really think about, unless you're know someone you are homeless that you take for granted having an address to receive mail. Uh, you take advantage of having a, a smartphone or access to internet to access a digital mail. And maybe that that's another kind of question I want to probe with maybe looking at, I had a great conversation yesterday with a lady named Shelby Fredrickson, who, who just graduated from University of Baltimore and do a lot of work on social services. And we talked a little bit about financial tech and fintech and giving I've seen a lot of restaurants ban the ability to use cash to buy food and you know this access to bank accounts and fintech. Um, any thoughts that come to mind in terms of some of the challenges or opportunities that you see with enabling peer-to-peer transactions or maybe even um, if you've clicked at crypto or Bitcoin, is that maybe an option or anything like that? It's so challenging to you know to use digital responses here because. The access is spotty, uneven, and in many ways at times unfair. And, you know, here's another example. You know, there, there's often people who will say, well, you know, the public library has computers and you can access them there. That's all true. But if you've ever gone and tried to do that, what you'll quickly realize is that you have a very narrow time slot. There's a lot of restrictions around what you can and cannot browse to. And if you're in the middle of something that is important and you're doing it online, it could be that your time runs out and you need to leave your computer for the next person to come in. And that, that's, that's very common. The other real common part is you may have a slot at 1130, but there's a line of folks waiting to access those computers and you may not access your computer until 1145. If you're trying to connect with somebody for a job interview, they're not going to be particularly happy that you were 15 or 20 minutes late to that job interview. It's just these little pieces that are peppered throughout our community. Here's another one. Many people experiencing homelessness are unable to hold a, you know, a permanent full-time job and can't really even access a permanent full-time job because they don't have an address and often they won't have a phone. How would they receive a callback that, you know, that, that says, hey, we're, we're interested in you? And there are plenty of smartphones out there that, that you know, people experiencing homelessness have. And there are plenty of, you know, you, you can pick up a, a minutes phone. They used to call it an Obama phone. And, you know, it's a safe link phone. It's free. And it gives you some minutes, but it is certainly not at the level that my S20 operates. 
at. That's for darn sure. And so, and it's restricted on the minutes. So most people keep those minutes for appointments and for potential job calls. One final thing, that is that because it's difficult to obtain permanent employment, many people use day labor. And day labor can be extraordinarily exploitive. And they recognize, and I'm not, you know, I'm not casting dispersions on all day labor companies, but there are times when they recognize the population that works for them is right for being taken advantage of. I'll just, I'll just say that. Yeah. Great context. I mean, I think a lot of times innovators, entrepreneurs will say, oh, let's just design an app for that. Or let's design, let's just use the internet to do this. But especially within this particular population, there are challenges to access the internet. There's challenges with access to smartphones. There's challenges with charging devices. You know, there's, these are all little things that are maybe just assumed. So I, I want to dr- drill that into anyone listening here when thinking about this, this population. And one thing that you said, and I excuse me if, if, if I've said this in the wrong way earlier, but I think it's an important distinction that when talking about this community, it's a person experiencing homelessness, not a homeless person. And I want you to maybe talk on why that's an important distinction, because I, I think there are sometimes people look at someone on the street and it's like, oh, look at that homeless guy or girl. But it's like, well, that's a person too. And you know, they're just, they are experiencing homelessness. So just interested in your thoughts on that distinction and if that, that makes any sense. It absolutely makes sense. And listen, you know, words matter, language matters, and it matters a lot. And when we work with people who are experiencing homelessness, really the goal should be that it's strengths-based, it's person-centered, it's trauma-informed, and it meets the person where they're at. So here is a, uh, a way for you to get a sense of the difference between homeless person and a person experiencing homelessness. I'm going to use a different term. I want you for just a second to think of the image that comes to your mind when I say addict, all right? You've got that image in your mind? Yep. Now I want you to think of the same image when I say a person dealing with a substance use disorder. Does it change how you see that individual? Yes. Exactly. So when I say homeless person, your mind goes immediately to whatever negative connotation you may have, and you have distilled a human being down to homeless. And that becomes their complete identity. And when that happens, it becomes much easier for them to be marginalized, ignored, oppressed, arrested, and removed and hidden from our society and our community. Well painted. Yeah, I, I mean, last night I watched part of the, the presidential debate. I don't know if you could call it debate, whatever you, what that mockery was. But regardless, one thing that Joe Biden said that stuck with me was when the conversation of his son, who was not labeled as a drug addict, but was someone who had experienced substance abuse and how he overcame that. And he was proud of him. And that exactly is just like you said, of like, we're not out there calling Joe Biden's son a drug addict. We're talking about how he had a substance abuse problem and recovered from it and is doing better and we're proud of him. And I think that is such an important dynamic here that words really do matter. And sometimes we just paint a picture of someone and we have these stigmas, but 
we need to break these stigmas and we need to make sure we talk about them correctly because it comes back to the point of people experiencing homelessness, people who are experiencing drug abuse or these issues. They are people with feelings. And you, you yourself, you, you've talked a lot about the mental health aspect. I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. The, the underlying issues that maybe people don't know and, it, and part of that may compound in the fact they don't have access to healthcare resources. They don't have access to a psychologist. They don't have access to some type of medication that is appropriate for them. What are maybe some of these underlying issues around the mental health component? And, and then what are some things that you're seeing that are avenues for support around this mental health issue for, the, for people experiencing homelessness? I mean, that's a terrific question, Kevin. I will say this. I make the assumption when I engage with people experiencing homelessness and when I, you know, training and, you know, providing technical assistance to organizations that provide homeless service delivery, that most of the people that are out experiencing, you know, out on the streets right now and, you know, experiencing homelessness or, you know, are unhoused, immediately for me, trauma survivors. And it's because the experience of homelessness in and of itself is traumatic. And if you are a trauma survivor and you, you know, you have been impacted by serious trauma, you've experienced a bit of a brain change. And there's, you know, there is plenty of, this is an evidence-based understanding. So you often operate in what's called hypervigilance. And I want you just to imagine for a minute, I'm going to talk to you about the slide into it. But I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like to move through your life every day on constant high alert that you could be harmed, that you could be in danger, and that you have no way of controlling or protecting yourself from that other than to keep moving. Could you live your entire existence in that state of mind without some sort of break, some sort of vacation, some sort of respite from that kind of intensity, uh, that fear, that, you know, that terror and that trauma. I will tell you this, if I was homeless tomorrow, I cannot guarantee that I would remain sober. I just can't. It's so challenging. Now, people often think that you know, people that folks on the street have ended up there because of their mental health and their substance use challenges. The truth is really that folks end up homeless for a whole variety of reasons, and sometimes mental health issues are there. But it often it's when they hit the street, any mental health challenge they may have had becomes larger and is magnified. It's not uncommon for a person to develop a mental health challenge while they're on the street. Imagine, I mean, depression of being homeless on the street. Yes, it's a real, you know, it's a real scene for folks. So you have an exacerbation of challenges simply by becoming homeless. And what I just would encourage people to understand is that you have to come at this picture of the person standing in front of you, you've got to realize that because we have separate systems in mental health, uh, you know, the primary care, substance use treatment, 
all these, you know, these different systems, they don't operate together. So folks are often treated for one thing while other things are left either ignored or untreated. And the challenge with that is many of those treatments are coercive in nature. Here's an example. If you want housing, you need to remain clean for the next 90 days. If you can come back and show me you went to 90 meetings in 90 days and you, you know, you've been clean for 90 days, then I'll consider giving you housing. Well, let me just dissect that for a second. First, you're asking me to do something for 90 days when I can't tell you I'm going to sleep tomorrow. And then you're asking me to remain sober in that time. And you're asking me to do things like attend 90 meetings without any money to get there. How am I supposed to do that? And for us out here that are, are, are providing those services, just think about the language that we're using, right? Clean. You need to remain clean. What, am I dirty? Am I, a, you know, am I somehow dirty? This is, again, where language and words matter. And how we approach people who are out there experiencing homelessness makes all the difference in the world as to whether or not they're going to put forth any effort at all in trying to extricate themselves alongside of you. Here's one of the, to me, one of the strongest and best solutions. And we already have this at our fingertips. We just haven't deployed it as effectively and as widespread as I think it needs to be. And that is using people in recovery, peers and peer support to walk alongside their brothers and sisters out there that are still struggling, whether it's from homelessness, substance misuse, mental illness, it doesn't matter. If a peer is able to walk alongside in support of that individual and connect them to the resources, help them navigate the, the challenges of these siloed systems that those of us in recovery had had to do in order to achieve recovery, we have instant credibility with our brothers and sisters because we talk their talk and they know they can look at us and hold us up as an example. And while we're walking alongside them, by God, we can carry their hope until they're once again strong enough to carry it to themselves. I love that. And I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity there to expand that peer-to-peer -peer network to help provide that support network amongst past and current people within this population. So I think that that's a great tidbit for people to think about of ways to innovate on that. And, and one thing that you said, and I, I actually, I've developed relationship with a few people experiencing homelessness around Chicago. And I, whenever I can, I, I smile at them. I, I buy them some sandwiches, some drinks. I give them a couple of bucks here and there just because I can. But I remember one thing that Don told me who, who lives kind of right outside this, this church right by me in Chicago in Old Town. I was talking to him and he was like, yeah, man, like just every night when I go to sleep, like I have to worry about someone standing on top of me with a rock and banging my head in. And I just remember right there just thinking like, holy smokes, like just those little things you didn't think about. Like imagine just your heart rate and your stress of like, anytime you close your eyes, you are fearing for your life. And I couldn't imagine that that constant stress and how that cascades into other things. And I think those, those are just points that I don't think people realize is the framework of what that mindset is like for people experiencing homelessness. 
And it's really important to hear it from someone like yourself. And it's critical for people that want to address this problem to understand that. Because if you don't understand that, we're going to be throwing darts and not actually accomplishing anything. That was perfectly stated, Kevin, and that is hypervigilance. What you just described is a trauma response with hypervigilance. And to maintain that, this is part of PTSD, to maintain that hypervigilance state over an extended period of time is incredibly difficult. It's, it is incredibly draining. And just imagine living your life every day, not knowing where you're going to put your head tonight, not knowing where the next meal is going to come from, and then having the fear that in your sleep, somebody could come and do great harm. In Nashville in 2007, I'm pretty sure it was 2007 or 2008, two men pushed a woman in a sleeping bag off our little dock where a riverboat tour happens. That woman fell into the Cumberland River and drowned and died. The two men were convicted of murder, but my point is, to them, that wasn't a human being. They just threw a piece of trash into the river. They threw a homeless person into the river, not a person experiencing homelessness. And now I, I understand you recognize that difference too. Yeah. Wow. I mean, those are the kind of stories that unfortunately raise the hair on your arms and it's terrible to hear, but that's why these conversations are important. So I, I want to I end I have a couple more questions, but one to kind of hear about just your work today. What you mentioned earlier before we started this recording that you were doing a three-hour training. What are you doing today? What is your organization that you're working with and how could people get involved or collaborate? Wow, thank you for asking that. I work for an organization called C4 Innovations and C4 Innovate used to be called the Center for Social Innovation. It's uh, located in Boston, but we have folks all around the country uh, we're you know, considered remote employees, but we are all doing work related to behavioral health challenges. And often when I introduce myself uh, in some of these trainings, I talk about you know, my own lived experience with the big five of behavioral health conditions. And I, I articulated all of those when I shared you know, why I have this lived experience that, that allows me to engage in and support people experiencing homelessness, as well as people with an opioid use disorder or a substance use disorder or a trauma history or a mental illness. And I wear all those things on my sleeves because I'm trying to normalize the fact that there are many of us in our communities that have these challenges and they do not define us. And my company follows that sort of understanding to a T. And they support those of us in recovery. They use our power of our recovery itself to inform the work that we are doing to support others in our behavioral health system. And the, the work I do today really is attempting to transform the current medical model of the mental health and really of, the, you know, of our community structure. And, and that is that, you know, the medical personnel have all the answers and, you know, they're, they're always right. And those are the folks who will handle these, these challenges and these situations. We believe that there is a role and a strong one for clinicians 
But we also recognize the power that people who have recovered bring to the table and that their strategies and their solutions to these very complex challenges are often better or they augment and support and enhance the current therapies and strategies that the medical model uses. And so I always like to say that my organization supports and encourages and works to make this happen. That is a complementary relationship between peer support workers, those of us in recovery who do this kind of work, and the larger uh, systems in this country. And one of the ways that we're, we're doing that, aside from training and technical assistance, is we're looking at you know, what causes stigma, what is structural stigma within an organization, where does that come from, and how do we combat that? How do we stop that? Equity. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's critical that we are all, all our voices are heard, and there's a cultural relevance. It's not even a competence anymore. It is understanding that, you know, there are a number of different cultures in our country, and they should be respected. We are not here to pound, you know, round pegs into square holes. We have been doing that for a hundred years, and we are in worse shape today than we were when we started. So that's really the goal of my organization, and it, it is the sort of the, the lifetime passion of the work I do every day. So thank you for that context, and I, I know that you're you're doing a great job, and I'm excited to continue to stay in touch and follow that. And so for those that are listening, I mean, the notes will be in the podcast, so make sure to, to connect and see the work that Stephen's doing. But Stephen, I want to close out with two questions here. You can answer them in either order. What is one thing at the current moment that really excites you? And then what is one thing that absolutely terrifies you or, or keeps you up at night? Whew, um, those are great questions. Uh, I think, you know, let me respond with the positive. The one thing that excites me, I think, you know, our country and particularly those, those individuals who shape policy around behavioral health challenges and, you know, solutions to, community challenges, I feel like we have raised a lot of awareness and we have changed the playing field for the better. And, and you know, that partially is because we've begun to involve those, those individuals with lived experience and we've provided seats at the table. And in some cases, they're the ones owning the table now. That's a huge change. So I am really encouraged that we're going to get this right. We're going to get this right, and we're going to, we are going to create anti-racist, equitable, fair, loving, strength-based, trauma-informed communities. That is my life's goal, and we are on track to do that. It may not happen in my lifetime at the level I want to see, but the horse is out of the barn. Conversely, I'm extraordinarily terrified by what I think has been the dumbing down of America and the inability for many to discern truth from fiction, the sort of corrupt nature of misinformation for political gain. And honestly, and per, you know, this is, I think, more specific and, and related to America than perhaps any place else in the world, but that may be my ethnocentric opinion. But it is 
our greed is killing us. Our greed is killing our planet, our creatures, and us. And I don't see a way out of that in the current climate we're in. And when you add on top of that things like a, you know, a COVID pandemic, it just magnifies all those inequalities in ways that cause me great concern and certainly impact my own ability to continue carrying my hope. Well said, Stephen. And, and we could spend hours talking about what you just said from excited to, to what terrifies you. And, and I, I echo those thoughts and have certain those fears of what uh, keep me up at night. But I, I do believe, while sometimes I do feel like we're going to become the movie The Matrix, um, I do believe in the human race and our ability to change our mindsets on not just focusing on growth, 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 but looking at trying to live in unison and harmony with the earth and, and looking at people like people and treating them fairly and, and living within our means. So I, I'm optimistic about that and hopeful for it, but you know, it takes, it takes individuals like yourself and everyone listening here to, to take action because um, it's not going to happen just between the two of us or tonight. It's, it's going to take many hands and many nights. So I challenge you all to uh, take action on this. Reach out to Stephen, reach out to myself and, and Stephen. I, I want to thank you for your time today, your, your amazing story, the work you're doing. And I really look forward to staying in touch and, and seeing what happens next. Absolutely, Kevin. And listen, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And don't ever forget, you've got a big role in this battle. Thank you, you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.